Okay, wake the dead. None of the three uh, nerds here have voice actors credited at the end, but I'm almost certain that one of them is voiced by Bruce Tim. It's not the uh, the head nerd, for lack of a better thing to call him, the blonde one here, but rather the one that uh, that has glasses that I'm almost certain is voiced by Bruce Tim. If you look closely at the, at the dorm room here, you'll notice that there's a lot of uh, geek stuff in there, uh, here and there. There's a there's a Swamp Thing poster on the wall, and uh, apparently Bruce Tim added a little uh, a statue of a character that looks suspiciously like Hellboy. It, it's not Hellboy himself, but rather someone that looks kind of like him, has a little statue there in the background. Little bits like that he likes to throw in. Very nice smoke effects here. Now I wonder what would have happened if the spell had gone through to completion, because the only reason we get mindless, soulless, destroy everything Grundy is because uh, the the circle was broken and the spell failed. I don't know if these three would have been imbued with the strength of Grundy, or if Grundy would have been at their command, or what. The one on the left there is the one I think is voiced by Bruce Tim. I don't know who's doing the other guys. The blonde one, uh, in a couple of places, sounds a bit like George Newbern pitched way up, but I don't know if it is or not. There's the uh, Hellboyish statue there. Sort of an upside-down Star Trek insignia there, too. I, I hadn't noticed that before. This is a very uh, Joss Whedon-esque act break right here with the hand coming in through the door and just cutting away like that. The way uh, Buffy and Angel, two of uh, Joss Whedon's TV shows, will establish a certain mood or a certain, uh, certain pace uh, in the teaser and then just completely break that mold at the end of the teaser, uh, either by having something really funny punctuate a serious teaser or uh, or just the opposite. It reminded me a lot of that. So uh, this episode features the return of Solomon Grundy, of course, and uh, people who might look at it and complain that they're bringing Grundy back after his, uh, his excellent death scene in the Terra Beyond should know that in the comics, it's uh, the major facet of Grundy's character is that he dies and returns. It was established in uh, James Robinson's Starman series that part of the spell that uh, reanimated Cyrus Gold as Solomon Grundy made it so that he could die, the zombie could be destroyed, but then he would rise again a short time later with a different facet of Cyrus Gold's personality at the fore. So in the comics, he'll be evil, and then he'll die, and he'll come back, and he'll be kind of childlike and innocent, and he'll die, and he'll come back, and he'll be an intelligent uh, Grundy, and, and so on and so forth. So uh, this episode kind of pays homage to that, either intentionally or unintentionally. Here, Aquaman's acting kind of chauvinistic and uh, confrontational, but he's not. he doesn't actually have anything against women. What he's trying to do here is he's trying to goad Shire into standing up for herself and, and acting like her old self, but she'll have none of it. 
Here, Aquaman doesn't actually put her into checkmate, he just puts her into check, which, of course, if you know anything about chess, you know that it's simply a temporary uh, state of defeat that you can get out of with, if you pay attention and you, uh, and you make intelligent moves, but Shaira just gives up, which is what provokes Aquaman further and sets him off right here. Shaira's whole arc uh, starts here and kind of climaxes in, in my opinion, in Divided We Fall, uh, has to do with her regaining her, uh, I don't want to say her, her warrior lust or anything, but her uh, her assertiveness, her, uh, her passion for combat and for life in general, and uh, it sort of starts here where we see that she's lost all of that. <laughs> Robert Picardo is great as the sort of gentle Lamezo as well. I'm not sure Naboo would appreciate having a Justice League communicator jammed in his helmet, but whatever. It's interesting because um, after Starcrossed, I sort of imagined where Shaira might have gone, and I had it in my head that if they wanted to bring her back in JLU, even if just for one episode, what they could do is, is have her she might have become uh she might have moved to say south america and taken up residence in a in a small maybe like a farming village or something and it comes under attack by i don't know bandits or even a supervillain or whatever and she has to pick up her mace one last time and and defend it and then she sort of goes back to obscurity but with a better perspective and and a sense of peace and so on and she sort of finds happiness uh and closure there I didn't imagine they would actually bring her back to the team. I just thought if they wanted to do a one-off episode that featured her, maybe to the exclusion of every other member, uh, they could do something like that. And so it was with great shock that I heard the Starcross commentary, and Bruce Timm said that one of the ideas they had as far as where Shaira might have gone was that she might have become the guardian angel of a small South American town. So I was a little eerie that they had the exact same idea I did. I'd like to think that it's a case of great minds thinking alike, but... Maybe it's just we've all read one too many superhero stories. So here's the introduction of Vixen, played by the fantastic Gina Torres, who uh, will be known to Joss Whedon fans as uh, Zoe on Firefly and uh, Jasmine on Angel. Uh, interestingly enough, Vixen was going to be the first female black superhero to have her own ongoing series, but... The first issue was completed, but it was cancelled before it ever saw print because of the so-called DC implosion, where sales were down and DC had to cancel a lot of titles, some of which hadn't even begun yet. Um, she ended up debuting in Action Comics, Superman's main series, obviously, number 521 in July 1981. Um, her story goes that in, uh, in ancient Africa, there was a legendary hero named Tantu, and he asked the uh, god Anasi the Spider to create for him a totem that would allow him to harness the abilities of the entire animal kingdom. Uh, Anasi the Spider acquiesced and gave him this item, and he became uh, a legendary hero throughout Africa. And eventually throughout the ages, the totem got passed down to the Makabe family, of which Vixen is the youngest member. It happened that... Uh, Vixen, whose full name is Mari Jiwe Makabe, uh, grew up in a small African village, 
Her mother had been killed by poachers. Her father was killed by her uncle so that her uncle could possess the Tantu totem uh, that her father had in his uh, guardianship at the, at the time. Uh, she fled to America, where she became a fashion model, which is how we were first introduced to her here. Uh, later on, she returned to Africa, claimed the totem as her own by taking it back from her murderous grandfather, and uh, became vixen. She joined the Justice League during its much maligned uh, JL Detroit era, which was a period in time which uh, Aquaman and, and Jean and Elongated Man were joined by several new uh, seen as being sort of younger, more uh, diverse characters. Uh, a lot of people were somewhat put off by all these new characters who were suddenly in the Justice League. Uh, the team was headquartered in Detroit, and uh, it's probably not the most fondly remembered era in Justice League history, in fact, probably quite the opposite. But it did yield some uh, some great characters like Vixen. Uh, recently, probably in no small part due to her popularity on JLU, uh, she's become a charter member on Brad Meltzer's new Justice League of America, and for the first time sports the costume that she wore here in the cartoon, which is a sort of a loose adaptation of the costume she wore for years in the comics. I noticed that they gave Grundy orange eyes here, and I think they also darkened the color palette of his clothes from sort of light gray to black, uh, both of which serve to make him much more menacing. And it really does work, because you, you sort of feel this rage coming off of him that you don't, uh, don't really see in any of his other appearances. Interestingly enough, Bruce Timm himself voiced Solomon Grundy in this episode, as opposed to Mark Hamill, who of course is his traditional voice actor, it happened that uh, when, they ca when it came time to record this episode, Mark Hamill was doing a play on Broadway, and uh, although they could have had him do his lines uh, over the phone uh, from a studio in New York, uh, Bruce Tim decided that it wasn't really necessary since he didn't have any speaking lines and was just sort of grunting and growling. Um, so Bruce Tim, since he had sort of doubled from Mark Hamill and done some of his roars in past episodes said, well, hey, I can do that. But the day uh, came to record the episode and Bruce Tim had pneumonia. And so although he could sort of walk around and he could talk a little bit, by the time he finished doing all of Grundy's primal roars, he could barely speak afterwards. They, He said that uh, if, if Grundy had had any actual dialogue, they would have gotten Mark Hamill back, thankfully. Uh, otherwise, that would have been... Uh, quite jarring, but since it was just roars, he felt he could do it himself. Here in a second, we're going to see the return of Shaira's mace, and whether they did it because of this or not, I don't know, but I can't help thinking that sort of the awe and majesty and grandeur that they imbue the moment where she's reunited with her mace with um, is, is probably due to uh, the almost ridiculous power level that the mace had in the earlier seasons, where in Warworld, if you'll recall, there was Mongol had this uh, laser that could destroy an entire planet, but Shaira smacked the beam with her mace and destroyed the cannon, and that was that. So it could destroy a planet, but apparently not the, uh, the Thanagarian nth metal mace. Uh, and so moments like that, and the fact that she would often take down magical opponents with it that Superman would have problems with, although that's obviously due to Superman's weakness uh, to magic. 
stuff like that sort of combined to give the mace an almost ridiculous uh, level of power in the fans' eyes. So the fact that they give it such a dramatic return here is, is somewhat fitting. Bruce Tim says that he uh, he loves the way Oded Fair, uh, the actor who plays Dr. Fate in this series, pronounces Solomon Grundy's name. It comes out more like Grandi with an O. It's just a, a little endearing thing that I imagine is completely uh, unintentional on the actor's part because of the accent that he himself has, but this comes out as a fun little thing. The uh, When the Terror Beyond first aired, a lot of people noticed that um, this sort of trio that seemed to form of, uh, or rather quartet, I should say, of, of Grundy, Dr. Fate, Aquaman, and Shaira, uh mirrored an early lineup of one of Marvel's superhero teams, the Defenders, where Grundy was obviously the Hulk, and... Uh, Aquaman was Namor the Submariner, and uh, Doctor Fate was Doctor Strange, and Shire was kind of a, a mixture of Valkyrie and Nighthawk. Um, and they were right to notice that because uh, when they were plotting out the story for the Terror Beyond, it came to their uh, attention that they basically had a, a mirror version of the Defenders all set, and so they uh, went took it even further and added a couple more characters to complete the uh, the lineup, and that's how we got the Terror Beyond, which was basically just a a 45-minute Defenders homage. Uh, so here, for the groups, if you want to call them a group, I'll get back to that in a second. We just had uh, Aquaman's theme there, one of the only two times it's used here here and in uh, The Enemy Below. But it's a great little bit. Um, yeah, so here for the group's second appearance, uh, Amazo was added to the lineup, and he sort of became the Silver Surfer analog so that's sort of the origin of this uh, this group of characters and their, the reason why they're put into a couple of episodes together. I love that that's the first thing Shaira says to Green Lantern. Hate the beard. <laughs> Superman's spit curl is flopping around because it's wet. Just great little animation touches like this. And Aquaman, watch Aquaman run in from the side to, so he can get into the big group shot. That's funny. You've got widescreen as widescreen aspect ratio for a reason here, guys. You don't need to have characters run into the middle of the frame. You don't see uh, Dr. Fate interact with the other characters that much. He's sort of a lone wolf in a way, if you want to use that cliche. Um, but he's got, he's got a, a really funny uh, couple of lines with Superman there. In fact... Uh, when Shaira refers to herself here as Bird Nose, she's of course referring to what Grundy called her in the Terror Beyond, and uh, that's apparently what the Hulk would call uh, Nighthawk in Marvel's Defenders comics. And I wouldn't know, I've never read a Defenders comic, but apparently that's the case. So here we're coming up on uh, something that's proven quite controversial, where uh, everybody tries to stop Grundy and they can't, uh, understandably, and then Amazo steps in and he tries to stop Grundy, but uh, Grundy just absorbs his powers, and so Amazo decides to teleport away, and he's never heard from again. Now, two things about that. A, some people said, well, since we find out that Nth Metal can disrupt the spell that animates Grundy, couldn't Amazo simply have turned himself into Nth Metal, or, you know, turned his hand into Nth Metal, or created an Nth Metal mace or whatever, and beaten Grundy quite easily that way? 
Well, yes, he could have, but at this point in the fight, they don't know that Nth Metal affects Grundy. So that's point A taken care of. The second bone of contention here that sort of became a retroactive bone of contention is that Amazo never appeared again after this. So some people have said uh, sort of half-jokingly that they should have, in the final episode in Destroyer, they should have cut away at the very, very end, the last shot in the series, should have cut uh, suddenly to Amazo sitting on the moon or something. And he'd been there for like a year, and he's sort of thinking to himself, I wonder if Grundy's been beaten yet, and it's safe for me to go back to Earth. Whether uh, Amazo is still out there, post-Destroyer, wandering the universe, uh, trying to find a way to stop Grundy not knowing that he was defeated a year ago, or, or whether he, uh, he did come back to Dr. Fate's Tower and we just didn't see him again. It's one of the very few instances in JLU that the writers sort of seem to falter and not know how to handle a character and, and deal with them quite slop, sloppily. Uh, if you're going to create a character as powerful as Amazo and you're going to have him stick around at Dr. Fate's Tower, then every single time the League gets in trouble, people are going to say, well, why don't they just call Amazo? So it stands to reason you've got to get rid of him, but if you just have him go away and not come back without any explanation, that's not quite a perfect solution either. So that's one of the few times I think the fanboy gripes with the series were justified. I mean, I don't... Amazo didn't really appear enough to make a huge impression. It's not like we really miss him in Destroyer or whatever, but... Uh, but that's something I feel that the fans are justified in complaining about. Now here we're about to get into the whole thing in a, in a minute here where uh, Amazo's... Where, where Grundy, sorry, is knocked underground and they all stand around talking about... Uh, whether Shaira should kill him or not. Uh, when Shaira does kill him, it created a huge debate on the message boards that Shaira was now a murderer because she had killed Grundy, and does the League now condone murder, and is Shaira a murderer, and all this other stuff. Bruce Tim and the other writers did not foresee any of this. They thought that they explained quite clearly that there was no mind, no soul, no emotions, no anything in Amazo, in, in Grundy, I don't know why I keep doing that, in Grundy, except for pure animal rage, that he is just the corpse of Shaira's friend, reanimated by magic like a puppet, and imbued with this rage against the world. And so when she quote-unquote kills him, she's not killing a sentient being, She's disrupting a spell that's animating the corpse of her friend. And so, put in those terms, seems fairly unobjectionable. But nonetheless, raised uh, a lot of fuss on the message boards. Um, both Bruce Tim and Dwayne McDuffie have said that that reaction was completely unexpected, that in their, from their point of view, she was doing nothing more than disrupting a spell. Uh, but uh, perhaps to uh, take the debate one step further, Bruce Tim later posted on the message board saying that while, uh, in his opinion, Shaira does not kill Grundy here, but rather disrupt the spell, in his opinion, uh, he really has no problem with superheroes killing, even killing humans, under certain circumstances. And he says that uh, the facts will bear him out on this. If you go back and watch earlier episodes, in the Savage Time, the Justice League are quite clearly killing Nazi soldiers. In Secret Origins, they're quite clearly killing the uh, quote-unquote white Martian invaders. 
And so he says, Bruce Tim said that he has no problem with superheroes killing, and he uh, uses the analogy of a police officer being forced to kill in the light of duty if a if a criminal has got a a, a knife to the throat of a an innocent person. If the police officer does not shoot and kill that that criminal right then and there, in Bruce Tim's opinion, that police officer is not doing his job. And much in the same way, while he's not going to have the Justice League go around killing supervillains. There's got to be a point at which a superhero, even someone like Shaira or, yes, Superman, should be willing to take the life of a sentient being if the situation warrants it. Now, I'm not sure I completely agree with that. There's something to be said for having DC Comics superheroes be somewhat more pure and iconic than that. But uh, I can't say I find any fault with his reasoning uh, from an objective point of view. And... Uh, I do feel in this particular instance it's, it's not murder, it's not anything of the kind. It's exactly what the writers describe it as being. But still, something that comes up uh, with surprising frequency on the message boards. So we're about to learn, finally, the uh, the results of the little impromptu vote that took place at the end of Starcrossed. Uh, we presumed that uh, a lot of people were presumed and, and seemed to be right to presume that the League voted Shire out, which is why nobody objects when she starts to leave. If they had voted her in, you would think they would have said, White Shire, don't go, we decided you could stay. But they didn't, so a lot of people assumed that she had been voted out. What we find out in this episode was that Green Lantern abstained from the vote and that Superman was the tie-breaking vote in favor of keeping her. So based on the way the characters seemed to be talking at the end of Starcross and what their attitudes towards Shaira seem to be, the voting seems to have gone down with Batman and Wonder Woman voting to kick her out. Wonder Woman seemed to be quite angry at her, although Batman didn't say much. If we know that there's a tie that Superman broke, Batman had to be the other nay vote, because both Flash and Jean seemed quite sympathetic towards her and seemed to want her to stay. So that being the case, it seemed to be Batman and Wonder Woman against Flash, Jean, and Superman for. It's interesting that while Wonder Woman harbors a grudge against Shaira, as seen in The Balance, Batman seems to have gotten over it. Every interaction he has with her has no trace of uh, animosity or ill will or anything. I guess it just goes to show that uh, Batman's a professional, and when someone earns his trust, uh, even if they screw up and betray him, if he, if he understands where they were coming from and they've proven that they're able to win his trust back, he... Uh, he doesn't seem to have a problem working again, working with them. So that's Wake the Dead. Thanks for listening.